are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino, Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank HBE Rentals since 1994, offering equipment rentals for contractors, homeowners, and businesses. Open daily and reminding listeners, equipment rental is an environmentally sustainable option. HBE rental information at gohbe.com. After the NPR headlines and regional weather, I'll be speaking with Gary Zimmerman. We'll have this month's financial news update. Also, we'll have a report from NPR on the upcoming impeachment of former President Trump. And we'll have a commentary with Lorraine Webb. At 6.30, we'll be broadcasting this week's edition of The Sages Among Us and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines, followed by regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says the government's approach to climate change needs to be bold. NPR's Windsor Johnson reports he is signing a series of executive actions that include a temporary ban, a new oil and natural gas leases on federal land, and the creation of new jobs in the clean energy sector. President Biden says the executive actions are designed to supercharge the administration's plans to confront the ongoing threat posed by climate change. We know what to do. We've just got to do it. When we think of climate change, we think of it, this is a case where conscience and convenience cross paths. We're dealing with this existential threat to the planet and increasing our economic growth and prosperity are one and the same. Biden says the government needs to take steps to help revitalize economies of coal, oil and gas communities and create new good-paying jobs. Opponents of Biden's decision to shut down the Keystone Pipeline cite the tens of thousands of jobs that will be lost. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. The Senate panel today has easily advanced President Biden's nominee to be the next head of the Department of Transportation. Senate Commerce Committee on a 21-3 vote signing off on the nomination of former South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg. In an interview with NPR's All Things Considered today, the 39-year-old one-time presidential contender is promising an ambitious agenda, including a focus on clean energy. I think the most important thing we have to do is put an end to the false construct that says that this is about climate versus jobs. Look, climate policy is jobs policy. And the reality is the only way to have a sustainable growing economy is to grow jobs in a way that helps not hurts our climate goals. Buttigieg is on track to be the first openly gay person and one of the youngest ever to be confirmed to a cabinet post to vote in the full Senate could happen as early as this week. The Biden administration is putting a temporary hold on some pending arms sales to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. NPR's Jackie Northam explains the sales are worth billions to U.S. manufacturers like Raytheon and Lockheed Martin. The weapons sales, hammered out during the final days of the Trump administration, include munitions for Saudi Arabia and F-35 fighter aircraft for the UAE. The sale of the fighter jets was part of the Abraham Accord, whereby the UAE established relations with Israel. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the new administration wants to know what was signed. It is typical at the start of an administration to review any penny sales, 
to make sure that uh, what is being considered is uh, something that advances our strategic objectives and advances our foreign policy. The weapons sales will be frozen until the Biden administration has a full understanding of the deals. Jackie Northam, NPR News. This is NPR. Apple is calling on users of iPhones and iPads to update their devices. The company pointed to what it says is a serious security flaw that could apparently be exploited by hackers. Apple making the software upgrades available, adding a rare note suggesting it poses a serious threat. Companies credited anonymous researchers for pointing out the vulnerability but provided few details about the nature of the threat. Actress Cloris Leachman has died at the age of 94. The nine-time Emmy-winning actress slipped easily into a whole spectrum of roles, not just on TV, but on the big screen as well. And Paris Colin Dwyer has this remembrance. It's a tall task to sum up Cloris Leachman's vast and varied career. You could mention the two Emmys she won, playing a nosy landlady on the Mary Tyler Moore show. Then there's her Oscar-winning dramatic turn in The Last Picture Show. She even competed on Dancing with the Stars at the age of 82. But as she told Fresh Air in 2009, this abundant variety arose from a simple lesson that she learned early in her career. I think that was a basic decision for the rest of my life. I would never be the same way twice. The versatile actress earned induction into the Television Academy Hall of Fame in 2011. Colin Dwyer, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 633 points today. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News. And taking a look at the weather, first here in the Grass Valley, Nevada City area, looks like we'll have a low of 37, high of 42 tomorrow. Rain and a little snow tomorrow and Friday, partly cloudy on Saturday with rain returning on Sunday. In Sacramento, low of 46, high of 50, partly cloudy Friday through Sunday with rain likely Monday and Tuesday of next week. And in Truckee, They'll have a low of 31 tonight, high of 35 tomorrow, snow tonight and tomorrow, partly cloudy Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, with snow likely next week on Monday and Tuesday. Well, I'm speaking with KVMR's resident economist, Gary Zimmerman. And Gary, there seems to be a lot to talk about today. The Fed met today. I'm curious as to what happened. And there is a new forecast for the global economy. And then there's President Biden's proposal for the relief package as well. So let's get started. Now it's your turn. Well, Paul, thank you, uh, and thank you for all of your years as news director at KVMR. Uh, you know, you do realize that we've now done over 80 of these Q&As over the past several years, so impressive, and thanks again. Well, Gary, I have to say that people think I'm such an expert on economics that maybe my next career that I go into. <laughs> Sounds good to me, Paul. <laughs> we could use you. <laughs> as long as you can be my advisor. I'll try. <laughs> so anyway, how do things look? 
Well, the Fed policymakers met today uh, to talk about and make a decision on interest rates and monetary policy. They did not make any changes. Um, the short-term overnight interbank federal funds target interest rate. Now, that's a mouthful. That's the interest rate that drives the short-term market interest rates was left at zero to a quarter of a percent um, or, or nearly zero. So that did not change. The Fed will keep buying $120 billion in bonds every month. Um, to put, you know, a com continue accommodative uh, financial market conditions. So there's no change there as well. I, I think um, in his press conference today, Fed Chair Powell basically said that policy, uh, the policy, re policy response is just right. So that was my next question. Um, uh, did the Fed Chair Chairman Jay Powell make any major announcements uh, in his press conference today? No, not really. Um, you know, my take on the press conference is that, you know, he's still very concerned about the course of the economy. He'll leave the uh, need for additional financial uh, fiscal policy support to to Congress and the administration as they're trying to work that out now. Uh, but he's well aware of the the help to the economy from the policy support that has been <laughs> allocated in the past. And he's also well aware of the many risks facing the U.S. economy as COVID-19 the, hurts the nation and the economy. And uh, he's worried about that in the months ahead. So, um, you know, he did talk about the nine, we're nine to 10 million jobs short of maximum employment. Um, you know, that's important. And he mentioned that the unemployment rate would probably be about 10% if you included all of the roughly 5 million million workers who've left the labor force as a result of the COVID-19 recession. So, you know, lots, lots of issues uh, to be faced ahead. So, uh, Gary, um, in uh, mid-January, we, we had a chat about the several different economic forecasts that, that would have been projected for the U.S. economy, growing at a faster-than-average pace this year. But it also showed that the U.S. economy still has not recovered from the losses of the COVID-19 recession. Why should we be concerned about the global forecast? Okay, so why should we be concerned about a global fast forecast in addition to the U.S. forecast? Well, um, you know, forecasting is a challenge, and um, the global forecast is important because we're a big part of that world economy. And, um, you know, the global pandemic has had serious impacts on our economy, our workers and businesses, and not to mention the, you know, the rest of the world as well. And so, you know, why, why is the global or world economic forecast important to us? You know, several you know, issues come into mind. You know, the world economies and financial systems today are well connected. So a weak global economy affects all of us. And, you know, trade in goods and services with other nations are, you know, important part of the world economy and a big chunk of our economy as well. And a couple of trillion dollars in exports every year is, is a lot. Um, so big picture, you know, that's, <laughs> that's <laughs> important. So in, in your opinion, the uh, big picture, uh, when it includes the global economy, that really helps. Yes, big picture. You know, the global forecast is important to the U.S. Um, when the global economy is growing faster, the world is experiencing stronger income growth and the U.S. economy is likely to experience an increase in exports of goods and services. And at, that adds to our GDP growth, the strength of our economy and how fast it grows as well. So it's important. 
So, so uh, let's talk about the International Monetary Fund or the IMF. Um, that was also released this week, and they they're forecasting for the global economy in 2021. Are, are they as, are they seeing faster or slower growth or recession or recovery? But what does it look like according to them? Well, the IMF uh, International Monetary Fund is projecting a 2021 recovery with with fast growth. Their January global forecast that just came out this week uh, was upgraded slightly from their forecast in October 2020. You know, and, and it's important they're they're noting that the 2020 growth for the is actually the economy shrunk will have shrunk about three and a half percent in 2020. That's the worst world economic performance since the Great Depression of the 1930s. That's bad news for the world. That's bad news for us as well. Um, the 2021 outlook is more optimistic. The IMF sees faster global growth and increase in GDP of about five and a half percent at an annual rate. So that's that's good news and they are partially driven by supported by growth in trade and, and exports around the world so it's basically good news it looks like the uh, their forecast has a recovery in 2021 from the serious world 2020 recession okay so what would be a good estimate of the average global gdp growth rate over the last five or ten years i mean is it faster or slower than the 5.5 percent growth rate that the IMF is forecasting for 2021. Okay. Oh, good question, Paul. I'm not exactly sure. I don't have an exact number on that. But between 2011 and 2019, between the financial crisis and Great Recession and the COVID recession in 2020, um, the global economy generally grew at around 3% a year. So the 2021 IMF forecast of 5.5% growth this year is, is much faster. Um, you know, historically, you get faster growth years as the economy rebounds from recessions. You know, and that's, I think, what we're seeing, you know, globally as well as in the U.S. today. So um, any prediction also uh, perhaps has uh, risks associated to it. So what are the risks of the associated with the with their 2021 forecast? I mean, are they about normal or anything unusual about them? <laughs> Great follow-up question, Paul. Yeah, risks. All forecasts have risks. Um, this year, um, I think Chair Powell in his press conference today uh, described the risks as considerable risks. Um, you know, so I think it's you know also clear that the IMF and some private forecasters as well as well have basically described the 2021 global forecast as exceptionally uncertain. Uh, why is that? Um, in a word, I'd say COVID-19 or, or pandemic. So, you know, there are just huge amounts of risks associated there with, you know, will there be more COVID, you know, infections in 2021? Will there be more lockdowns? You know, will there be emergence of more difficult or easier to spread strains of COVID? Will there be, uh, you know, problems distributing the vaccines? Um, you know, there's lots of questions that go into the forecast and you know the fed as chair powell noted in his comments today you know is looking at the downside risk and trying to get a range of possibilities when they're you know projecting what's going on in the economy um i think it is important you know if, if all goes well you know the economy you know 
rebounds, COVID, you know, comes under control, you know, we'll see an increase in output, an increase in jobs, an increase in income, increase in demand and sales and, you know, improved business, you know, situation for for the economy. That, that's really important. I think it was interesting that Chair Powell noted today that the Fed wasn't going to take any action to take away support until they see improvement in the data and the real economy. They're not going to just look for an outlook that says things are getting better before they uh, take away some support. They're, they're, not, they're going to wait until it's real. Okay, Gary, so doesn't the IMF also forecast U.S.'s GDP as part of their global forecast? So what did they forecast for the U.S. in 2021? I mean, do they see it growing faster or slower than the worldwide forecast? Yes, the IMF obviously has to do a U.S. forecast as well, since we're the largest global economy. Uh, so it's an important part of the estimating world growth. Um, the U.S. forecast is a little slower than the 5.5 percent global forecast. So the I and that's you know not surprising. The world economy has typically grown at about one percent a year faster than the U.S. in recent years. Um, so still, the U.S. forecast that the IMS uh, IMF has put out is, you know, on the optimistic side, projecting a strong recovery for the U.S. with an annual growth rate of about 5.1 percent. You know, that's on the high side for the recent U.S. forecasts. Um, you know, the consensus of forecasts in the last couple of months have been closer to 4 percent 2021 growth. So uh, but, you know, they also this is a more recent forecast and probably incorporates better information and expectations on on the impact, the positive impacts from the vaccine, which would be a, you know, a good, good news, a good shock. Um, so and again, faster growth means more jobs, more income, more demand, more spending. And, and we clearly need that to climb out of the covid 19 recession hole that the economy is still in. So one more question, Gary, because um, we're just about out of time, but this is kind of important. Um, what is your opinion of President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID relief package for the economy? Will it help or too small, too big or just right? Or what's your view? On <laughs> that sounds a little bit like Goldilocks. I'm probably going to fall into the just right in the right ballpark category. Um, you know, the big question is the pandemic, how much damage it did to the economy in 2020 and how we recovered from that and how much damage is it doing right now, you know, and how far are we from a full recovery? I mean, we're just, I think we're still a long way from being recovered. Um, and again, right now we're still in the throes of a, you know, a surge in the pandemic that will hurt the economy again, although maybe not as much as it did in, in 2020. Um, you know, so the economy needs trillion dollars in help from the federal government and needs it now. I think some of my reasons for that would be we lost over 20 million jobs in 2020, only added about 10 million back. It means we still have about 10 million fewer jobs. Um, we're looking at, you know, 5 million workers who've permanently left the labor force. Um, and, you know, that's not showing up in that 6.7% headline unemployment rate we're seeing. Job losses. We saw 400,000 jobs lost in December. It's a huge number. Um, yes, the economy is slowing, um, at least in short run. Um, and we've seen sizable increases in the unemployment insurance claims. You know, they're closing in on a million a week. That's a very high number. You know, double what we saw in 
past recessions. So, you know, businesses are hurt. Um, they're at risk of closing or bankruptcy. Renters and homeowners are behind on rent and mortgages. Landlords and lenders are not getting paid or repaid. You know, state and local government layoffs and budget problems are, are huge. You know, we've had long lines, you know, food banks. So, you know, I think, I think the economy needs relief and it needs it now uh, before the job and income losses, you know, slow consumer spending and the recovery and lead to worsening business conditions, more bankruptcies, more business failures, more foreclosures, evictions, more job losses. And, and the longer workers are out of work, they tend to sort of lose their skills and, and find it much more difficult to get back into the labor force or, or to get you know, returned to the, at, to the labor force at a, at a comparable wage. So we want to make sure that this action is taken before the slowing that we're seeing right now becomes a, a downward spiral. Um, so I think most economists are very supportive of the need for a large relief package now, and that you know, would range from the new Secretary of the Treasury, my old boss Janet Yellen, for the administration to you know former Trump um, economist, chief economist Kevin Hastert. Um, so. My economist recommendation is yes, now and, and go large. And you know, on that note, finally, uh, <laughs> thanks again, Paul, for all your work as <laughs> KVMR <laughs> news director over these years. Well, thank you, Gary. And by the way, I'm, I am going to be doing some things here and there and interviewing you every two weeks is going to be one of the things I'm going to keep doing. So thank you so much for your contribution. Thank, thank you, Paul. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. Senators were sworn in yesterday to be jurors in the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump over his role in the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. But that procedural step was marked by a bit of drama thanks to a maneuver by Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, as NPR's Barbara Sprunt reports. In a tweet on Monday, Paul previewed that he wanted to force lawmakers on the record over the issue of whether former President Trump's impeachment trial is constitutional. He did just that yesterday. The move caught even some of his colleagues off guard. I think I was more surprised than anything. That's Lisa Murkowski, Republican senator from Alaska. Paul argued the trial is a partisan exercise and unconstitutional because Trump is no longer in office. If the accused is no longer president, where is the constitutional power to impeach him? Private citizens don't get impeached. Impeachment is for removal from office. And the accused here has already left office. But Majority Leader Chuck Schumer dismissed the idea and sought to table the motion. The theory that the Senate can't try former officials would amount to a constitutional get-out-of-jail-free card for any president who commits an impeachable offense. The Senate voted 55 to 45 to reject Paul's argument, clearing the way for the trial to move forward on February 9th. The outcome was expected. Democrats had enough votes to dismiss Paul's motion. But the vote count is telling and likely foreshadows the intentions of most Republican senators during the trial itself. It could signal a blow to the House's case in the Senate before the trial even starts. A two-thirds majority is required for a Senate conviction. 
Democrats would need 17 Republicans to join them to convict Trump. And in this vote, only five Republicans joined Democrats to table the motion. That includes Murkowski. She says she expects the question about constitutionality to come up during the trial. I think this is a matter that needs to be uh, brought before the full Senate. I think we need to have that level of Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell has left the door open on how he would vote after the trial. Still, even he sided with most of the Republican conference in support of Paul's motion. Senate Minority Whip John Thune of South Dakota, a Republican, said the vote doesn't necessarily indicate that lawmakers will vote one way or another after the trial. I just think that it was a question on the constitutionality of it. I don't think it binds anybody once the trial starts. But Susan Collins, a Republican from Maine who voted with the Democrats, says the implication is clear. The Senate will ultimately not convict Trump. Do the math. Do the math, she says. Barbara Sprint, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to community-supported radio, KVMR, FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino Placerville, and this is the Wednesday edition of KVMR's Evening News. KVMR's news program airs Monday through Friday, 6 to 6.30. Coming up at 6.30 this evening, we have this week's edition of The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Closing out today's newscast, we have Lorraine Webb with a commentary. I watched in heartbreaking horror as the incandescent radiance drained from my son's eyes and limbs on administration of his first recommended vaccine. I watched as my son was vaccine injured at only a few months old. The doctors told me that what I witnessed was incorrect, that the vaccine was undisputedly safe. I know what we've lived, my son and I, as a result of that irrefutable experience. And it is this kind of gaslighting to which we as a culture are often subjected by an often well-meaning, obviously failed medical system. As a lifelong progressive Democrat, I will not be dismissed as an anti-vaxxer, as I intend to see incentives for vaccine safety restored. Since 1986, vaccine manufacturers cannot be sued, even if proved that a vaccine has caused harm or even death. That was pushed through onto a reluctant Ronald Reagan at the insistence of kindly Dr. Fauci, who reminds me of Giuliani. Remember him? America's hero mayor? The same petrochemical pharmaceutical cartels are profiting from these monetized, market-driven manipulations and censorships. That Robert F. Kennedy Jr. is being refused equal air access to refute easily disproved, slanderous lies on national public radio is redolent of the discrediting smear tactics that have been used against many good physicians who dare to so much as question the advisability of vaccinating children before their immune systems have sufficiently evolved. In 2016, vehemently resisted California legislation ensured that there are no exemptions to the now enormous mandatory one-size-fits-all vaccine schedule. 72 doses of 17 vaccines, which can be implemented against children as soon as public opinion is sufficiently swayed. 
Even more divisive than abortion and gun control, I'm warning that Democrats' continued aggression on medical mandates will be the single issue that will give the 2024 presidential election to Republicans, who are motivated to find a more electable candidate with which to continue to plunder our beautiful, beleaguered planet. The politicized testing of COVID-19 is being manipulated to that end and used to divide us as we navigate our grief and vulnerability through this unprecedented crisis. Accredited and censored medical professionals predicted the inevitable increase of positive cases as the self-fulfilling conflated COVID PCR testing has increased. I witnessed a talk by the Nobel Prize-winning co-creator of the PCR test, wherein he adamantly stated that the test was not to be used as diagnosis, as deeper cycling of his test will reveal insignificant bits of RNA detritus as false positives. In this talk, Dr. Mullis also called out Anthony Fauci as a fraud. The unproven and unprovable notion that humans are asymptomatic carriers of this disease is the greatest publicity coup ever perpetuated on the planet and constitutes an ongoing crime against humanity. The paradigm of Western medicine is inextricably linked with colonization and genocide, though a balance of holistic indigenous knowledge and allopathic Western medicine is still ours to realize, providing we don't continue the descent into misguided arrogance and destruction of our bodily defenses and our beautiful Earth's biome. As a medical transporter and caring human, I have always taken extra precautions with cleanliness and temporary distancing when dealing with any immune-compromised individual and am currently following all state-suggested protocols, including mask wearing. I draw the line at imposed warfare on our personal and collective biome and bodies. I need my job in order to afford to keep our home, but given these conditions, neither I nor my mother and son will consent to contract tracing tests or any vaccine that may be mandated. We are pleading that Nevada County follow Placer County's precedent and refute these unsound overreaches. May we, as a currently endangered species, see through this bottomlessly funded fear campaign and rise to a new medical paradigm that is included inclusive of more than reactionary symptom and disease suppression. And, as admonished by my beautiful 92-year-old mother, reclaim the hug. My name is Lorraine Webb, and this commentary reflects my personal opinion and does not necessarily reflect the opinion of KVMR Radio, its staff, volunteers, or members of the Board of Directors. That's our newscast for this evening. Next up, we have The Sages Among Us, and at 7 o'clock, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. I'm Paul Emery. Have a good evening.